Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3.16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Melbatos here. Thank you for joining me today. It truly amazes me how God's word edifies us. Now we read passages and glean wonders, grace and majesty every time we study it and take it in. But it's in those times of reading a passage for the who knows how many times and realizing the implications of just one verse that's really amazing to me. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 has continually been that verse for me. Here we go again, and this verse has deep implications for this very episode, that scripture thoroughly equips us for every good work. So if it thoroughly equips us, then it will tell us what good works are and what our purpose is. It is when we do not believe that scripture equips us that we look for what good works are apart from it and usually look to men in the world to tell us what works are good and which are not. So this is why I want to discuss two opposing doctrines today. The purpose-driven, God-sized dream doctrine versus good works and the doctrine of vocation. So, in the last couple episodes, we dived into Holly Gerst's book, You Made for a God-Sized Dream, Opening the Door to All God Has for You, and it was a pretty deep dive, 219 pages, on what to do if God gives us a God-Sized Dream, how to get over our fear, and why we should pursue them. Those were just some of the topics she presented in this book. Now, given Holly Gerst is not someone particularly particularly popular in the American evangelical women's ministry of today. Instead, she specializes in being a life coach for women, charging $159 per session, but what she writes is an extremely popular teaching that has consumed most evangelical churches today. I know because I spent about five years in this teaching, as presented in our cell groups in church under the study of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. So today I thought I'd present to you two books that really opened my eyes and changed my beliefs on this very topic that's not talked about very well in Christian circles today. And this is the topic of good works and the doctrine of vocation. For this week's episode, I will be using four different books, two for each doctrine. So You're Made for a God-Sized Dream by Holly Gerth and The Purpose-Driven Life by Rick Warren are two books that promote a purpose-dream gospel, while Martin Luther's A Treatise on Good Works and Jean Edward Vieth Jr.'s God at Work are the two books I, one, highly recommend you read, and two, will be using to expound upon the doctrine of vocation as laid out in scripture. Now, Rick Warren's book is so popular, I don't think I need to go into any details on it, as probably most women in American church today have read it and done its study. Holly Gerst's book, on the other hand, is not as popular, but it has the same assumption and philosophy that is taught in The Purpose Driven Life. And you can listen to my critique on this book, which goes into deeper discussion into her claims and philosophies, and the link is in the episode details. So what is at odds between these teachings? What are the issues with purpose-driven teachings that conflict with scripture? Um, What are good works? And what is the doctrine of vocation? These are just some of the questions we're going to discuss. All right, I want to give an introduction to uh, Treaties on Good Works and God at Work, the two books I'm using. To start, I'll give a little background on Martin Luther's Treaties on Good Work. Luther started writing a sermon for his congregation on the topic of good works, but instead it ended up being much longer than a sermon would entail, so Martin Luther decided that his writing would become a booklet. 
His heart in writing the book was for his church laity, to which he had made a promise, and of course the book is the keeping of that promise. Now we need to understand that there was a big rumor going around during the time Luther began writing the treaty because of the teachings that Luther was promoting, specifically that justification comes by faith alone. And this is very important to take note of. The, quote, papal church had commended herself to princes and statesmen by her emphatic teaching of good works. Luther, on the other hand, had been accused, like the Apostle Paul before him in Romans 3.31, that the zealous performance of good works had abated, that the bonds of discipline had slackened, and that as a necessary consequence, lawlessness and shameless immorality were being promoted by his doctrine of justification by faith alone, end quote. That is from the Treatise on Good Works, Introduction, PDF Format, page 4. Now, because Martin Luther preached that God directs us to good works in his word, the Catholic Church propagated that Martin was against good works, leading to lack of discipline, which led to lawlessness. The Catholic Church called good works evil while calling their, ide their own idea of good works good. This made the claim that good works were only done in the vocation of the church. And this is where good works and vocation intertwine. Quote, the term vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. The scripture is full of passages that describe how we have been called to faith through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 How God calls us to a particular office or a way of life. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 to 2, and 7, verses 15 to 20. The doctrine of vocation is thoroughly biblical, as shall be seen, but as with other scriptural teachings, it surfaced and was developed with its greatest rigor during the Reformation. In the medieval church, having a vocation or having a calling referred exclusively to full-time church work. If a person felt a calling, this was a sign that he or she might have a vocation, which meant becoming a priest, a monk, or a nun. The ordinary occupations of life, being a peasant farmer or kitchen maid, making tools or clothing, being a soldier or even a king, were acknowledged as necessary but worldly. Such people could be saved but they were married in the world. To serve God fully, to live a life that's truly spiritual, required a full-time commitment. The counsels of perfection could be fulfilled only in the holy orders of the church in which a man or a woman could devote every day to prayer, contemplation, worship, and the service of God. Even marriage and parenthood, both recognized as good things, with marriage understood as a sacrament from God, were seen as encumbrances to the religious life. That's Jean Edward Veith Jr., God at Work, page 17 to 18. So what were the church's teachings on good works at that time? Such things as running to the convent, singing, reading, playing the organ, saying the mass. And an example of this today would be church service involvement, such as choir worship, or building and church planning, etc. Praying matins, matins were morning prayer service. Vespers. Vespers were evening prayer service and other hours. An example of this today would be getting up daily at a certain hour to pray or being in a prayer closet or attending prayer meetings. Gathering times, jewels, vestments, gems, and treasures. An example of this today might be raising money for church building and its necessity. The Catholic Church also encouraged the laity to go to Rome and to the saints. Um, an example of this today could equate to going to Bible conferences and women's um, seminars and stuff like that. So, and there were other things, such as curtsying and bowing the knee, praying the rosary and psalter, etc. The church designated these as truly good works, and for this reason, Luther's highest object in his treaties was to make perfectly clear what the essence of good works were. Quote, truly good works are not self-elected works of monastic or any other holiness, but such only as God has commanded, and as are comprehended within the bounds of one's particular calling. And all works, let their name be what it may, become good only when they flow from faith, 
the first, greatest, and noblest of good works, John 6.29. That's a Martin Luther Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, introduction, page 5. And this faith, quote, is the true fulfillment of the first commandment, apart from which there is no work that could do justice to this commandment, end quote, page 6. God at Work, a book by Jean Edward Veith Jr., is about God's providence in our vocations and what the doctrine of vocation looks like applied to our lives, the service to our neighbors through them, and God's hidden hand in all spheres of life. Quote, I had assumed that I knew what the doctrine of vocation was, that, yes, one can do every occupation to the glory of God. I assumed from the unassuming title that this was just just a collection of what Luther said on that subject. But both Luther and Ringgren said so much more. For Luther, vocation, as with everything else in his theology, is not so much a matter of what we do. Rather, it's a matter of what God does in and through us. End quote. Jean Edward Veith, Jr., God at Work, page 9. And this is why I find the short booklet by Martin Luther and Mr. V's book such gems and treasures that need to be taught and read among Christian women today. They rightly handle good works and faith without undermining God's character and ignoring his providential work. Martin Luther himself said in writing this treatise, quote, For the greatest of all questions had, has been raised, the question of good works, in which is practiced immeasurably more trickery and deception than in anything else, and in which the simple-minded man is so easily misled that our Lord Christ has commanded us to watch carefully for the sheep's clothing under which the wolves hide themselves. Martin Luther's Treatise on Good Work, PDF format, page 11. Now, it's the same today. We have teachers proclaiming and pushing us towards God-sized dreams or purpose-driven theology, urging of tithing, sowing seeds, and service to the church. Even the world pushes its ideas of good works, serving the hungry, giving to the poor, environmental concerns, (laughs) and today, even mask-wearing lockdowns and vaccines. Ask anybody and they'll tell you these are good works. But what does scripture say good works are? And what pleases the Lord? In scripture, faith is the ultimate good work. In fact, scripture tells us that all things that are not done in faith are sins. Romans 14, whatsoever is not done of or in faith is sin. Faith is what makes us children of God. All other works unbelievers can do, but only a Christian can have faith. And not just faith as a trait or a substance, but faith in the person who came to solve the problem. Now here is where I'm going to identify issue number one with purpose-driven dream doctrines. That it doesn't identify the true problem, our sins. Instead, it poses that humanity's problem is not a lack of faith, but a lack of purpose. It propagates the myth that the root of all evil is discontentment. God's size dream, purpose-driven doctrine, draws us in by diagnosing our discontentment as a longing for purpose instead of correctly identifying that our problem of discontentment is a sin rooting from a lack of faith and contentment in Christ and what he has done. This is a result of not understanding our problem, that we are in danger of hell and God's wrath due to our sin, separating us from God and the ultimate good. The purpose-driven religion identifies a problem, that of discontentment, and says the solution is to, quote, believe God loves you and made you for his purposes. Receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. Receive his forgiveness for your sins. Receive his spirit who will give you the power to fulfill your life purpose, end quote. Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, page 61. A cursory glance, and we can think that this is the gospel. I mean, he mentions Jesus Christ and being forgiven of sins, right? But starting out in the foundation of this religion is that it is entirely focused on us and the belief that we have a problem of purposelessness that people like Warren and Gerth want to help us resolve. And they believe this is what Christianity does, solves this problem, the problem of discontentment because of purposelessness. 
Because humanity has a problem of purposelessness, the gospel of this religion is the good news that God made you for a purpose and he has a plan for your life. And the world is saved when humanity comes to the realization that each and every one of us has was made to fulfill a purpose or dream and make a difference in the world. We are happier, blessed, and are closest to God when we are pursuing his purpose for us. And did you notice that Warren claims that the Holy Spirit, now I will give Warren a benefit of the doubt here because he actually said Jesus' spirit, and I'm pretty sure this is a Trinitarian view that's not quite right, but I digress. (laughs) So he says that the spirit will give us power to fulfill God's purpose for our life. Now we can't get this statement from scripture. Instead, we are told that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16, 8. He regenerates and renews us by his washing, Titus 3, 5 to 6. He sanctifies us, meaning he makes us more like Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and 1 Peter 1, 2. He causes us to obey the law, Romans 8, 4, and bear his fruit, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, and he turns us from our flesh, Galatians 5, 16 to 17, and Romans 8, 5 to 9. Now, moving on to issue number two, which is the fruit that comes from issue number one, and that is this, because humanity's problem is a lack of purpose, commitment to our purpose must be preached. Quote, Jesus told the Father, I brought glory to you here on earth by doing everything you told me to do. Jesus honored God by fulfilling his purpose on earth. We honor God the same way. When anything on earth fulfills its purpose, it brings glory to God. End quote. Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, page 58. And it gets quite ironic here. (laughs) Those who teach these doctrines constantly say that our purpose is a service to God and is not about ourselves, yet to motivate, encourage, and train us into purpose, the lessons lessons become about us and what we must do. They say it's, quote, not about you, the purpose-driven life, page 21, and you're made for a God-sized dream, page 164. But in reality, it is all about us. Here's one of the biggest issues with these te- these teachings, that the solution presented to us is entirely works-based and always about what we do for God. Jesus gets kudos for dying on the cross, but now that he's done that, it's time for us to focus on what we can do for him. And this purpose is always regulated to this world and making a difference. See, Christ doesn't really need to die for this. No, we just need the power of the Spirit to equip us. So Christ is not really needed in this religion, hence why he's not preached. Now, self-assumed good works are about ourselves and what we can do for God, while the good works given to us in Scripture are about our love for God and our love for neighbor. Quote, for Christ is at the last day, or for Christ at the last day will not ask how much you have prayed, fasted, pilgrimaged, done this or that for yourself, but how much good you have done to others, even to the very least. Now, without doubt, among the least are also those who are in sin and spiritual poverty, captivity and need, of whom there are at present far more than those who suffer bodily need. Therefore, take heed. Our own self-assumed good works lead us to and into ourselves, that we seek only our own benefit and salvation. But God's commandments drive us to our neighbor, that we may thereby benefit others to their salvation. Just as Christ on the cross prayed not for himself alone, but rather for us when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we also must pray for one another. For which every man may know that the slanderers, frivolous judges, and despisers of other people are a perverted evil race who do nothing else than heap abuse on those whom they ought to pray, in which vice no one is sunk so deep as those very men who do many good works of their own and seem to men to be something extraordinary and are honored because of their beautiful, splendid life in manifold good works." End quote. Martin Luther, A Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, page 44 to 45. 
Now in scripture, Christ is proclaimed over and over again because it's faith in him that produces the good fruit, apart from which we can do nothing. John 15, 5. When scripture is taught and Christ is proclaimed, by God's grace, faith grows and the fruits of the Spirit, which are always good, are produced. But there's a rub here, and that's this. Without faith in Christ, it's impossible to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and it is impossible to obey God's law fully. And from this we get issues number three. The law is not rightly taught, so Christ is not rightly preached. Now, purpose-driven dream doctrine assumes that God's law is easily accomplished and was given for our benefit. The law is assumed as either easy to accomplish or taught as lessons on how to excel in this life. They are taught to be obeyed so that our lives can be most comfortable, bringing us the most benefit instead of teaching that sin is an, affr- is an affront to a holy God, first and foremost, Psalms 51, four, and then an offense to your neighbor, Mark's 12, 28-31. The Reformers taught that the Bible uses the law, or the Ten Commandments, in three distinct ways. So the first way is the pedagogical use. I hope I said that right. (laughs) It reveals to us the perfect righteousness of God. This use is like a mirror to which we compare our righteousness to God's and see if we measure up. The Ten Commandments reveal to us our need and that which we should be striving for. Quote, there is no better mirror in which to see your need than simply the Ten Commandments in which you will find what you lack and what you should seek. If, therefore, you find in yourself a weak faith, small hope, and little love towards God, and that you do not praise and honor God, but love your own honor and fame, think much of the favor of men, do not gladly hear mass and sermon, are indolent in prayer in which things everyone has faults, then you shall think more of these faults than of all bodily harm to goods, honor, and life, and believe that they are worse than death and all mortal sickness. These you shall earnestly lay before God, lament and ask for help, and with all confidence expect help and believe that you are heard and shall obtain help and mercy. End quote. Martin Luther, Treaties on Good Works, PDF format, page 39. Now the second use of the law is called the civil use. This is a law being used to restrain. Governments and those in authority use the law to direct humanity to civil obedience. The third use that's important to us here in this topic, the moral or normative use. This is for believers. The law reveals to us what love does in action and what faith in God looks like in believers or what the works of faith look like since faith without works is dead. That's James 2, 14 to 26. It is the third use of the law that applies to us. It shows us, or Christians, what having faith in God or being faithful to God looks like. Here's an example. Let's look at the third commandment. The third commandment says not to take the Lord's name in vain. The implications of this are that we are to honor God's name. What does honoring God's name look like? How is that acted out day by day in faithfulness to God? When we talk about God to our kids, when we correct false teaching or proclaim God's great love and mercy, when we present the gospel, etc., where we do a good work because it is in faith and obedience to the third commandment. When I believe the truths that are told me, to me in scripture about God's character, such as the promises that God will listen to my prayers and in faith I honor his word by believing the promise and going to God in prayer, that is a good work. When we give thanks to God, we are not taking the Lord's name in vain, but instead are giving God honor for what he has given us. This too is a good work. As it says in Colossians 3, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Quote, On this is based the wonderful and righteous judgment of God, that at times a poor man, and whom no one can see many great works, in the privacy of his own home, joyfully praises God when he fares well, or with entire confidence calls upon him 
when he fares ill, and thereby does a greater and more acceptable work than another, who fasts much, prays much, endows churches, makes pilgrimages, and burdens himself with great deeds in this place and in that. Such a fool opens wide his mouth, looks for great works to do, and is so blinded that he does not at all notice this greatest work, and praising God is in his eyes a very small matter compared with the great idea he has formed of the works of his own devising, in which he perhaps praises himself more than God, or takes more pleasure in them than he does in God. And thus, with his good works, he storms against the second commandment and its works." End quote. Martin Luther, Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, page 24. People do not think of these as good works because they, in their minds, are easy and are inner good works, one that is done quietly and usually done privately and in honor to God. Yet if we were honest, who can praise God perfectly for the gift of natural life, not to mention all other temporal and eternal blessings? And so if we are overwhelmed with this good and precious work, as we should give praise and honor to God in all things, great and small, easy or hard, in times of blessings and in times of suffering, in abundance and in lacking, indeed in all things, for who at all times and perfectly fulfills this commandment? And who not only praises God for all things at all times, but also runs from any praise and honor given to his own person? Now, purpose-driven dream doctrines are all about receiving praise and honor through their purpose. Worldly society teaches that a woman should neglect family, home, for the praise and honor that comes from making a difference in the world. Every woman is encouraged to leave her footprint in society, and it's the same for women in the, pre- in the purpose-driven religion. Quote, for all heathen books are poisoned through and through with this striving after praise and honor. In them men are taught by blind reason that they were not, nor could not, be men of power and worth, who are not moved by praise and honor. But those are counted the best, who disregard body and life, friend and property, and everything in the effort to win praise and honor. All the Holy Fathers have complained of this vice and with one mind conclude that it is the very last vice to be overcome. St. Augustine says, All other vices are practiced in evil works. Only honor and self-satisfaction are practiced in and by means of good works. Therefore, if a man has nothing else to do except the second work of this commandment, that would be taking the Lord's name in vain, or not taking the Lord's name in vain, he would yet have to work all his lifetime in order to fight this vice and drive it out. So common, so subtle, so quick and insidious is it. Now, we all pass by this good work and exercise ourselves in many other lesser good works. Nay, through other good works we overthrow this and forget it entirely. So the holy name of God, which alone should be honored, is taken in vain and dishonored through our own cursed name, self-approval and honor-seeking. And this sin is more grievous before God than murder and adultery. But its wickedness is not so clearly seen as that of murder because of its subtlety, for it is not accomplished in the course of flesh, but in the spirit. Martin Luther's Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, page 25 to 26. Now, as you can see, Martin Luther describes how this work, the work of fighting off praise and honor for oneself and focusing on giving all praise and glory and honor to God, as instructed to us in the third commandment, in all that is said and done is a spiritual good work that is easily disregarded and would be one that would take all our effort and all our actions at all times to which if a man merely focused on just this one commandment, he would have no end of works to accomplish. And that is what leads us exactly into issue number four with purpose-driven dream doctrine, that scripture is not enough. So what do they think about scripture? Quote, God has not left us in the dark to wonder and guess. He has clearly revealed his five purposes for our lives through the Bible. It is our owner's manual, explaining why we are alive, how life works, what to avoid, what to expect in the future. 
It explains what no self-help or philosophy book could know. The Bible says, God's wisdom goes deep into the interior of his purposes. It is not the latest message, but more like the oldest, what God determined as the way to bring out his best in us. End quote. Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, page 24. Okay, so apparently the verse he used is from 1 Corinthians 2.7 from the Message Bible translation. And notice why he's quoting this verse, and more specifically, using this translation. He uses this translation, and I am <laughs> using air quotes when I call the Message Bible a translation. He uses it to support his claim that the Bible is our owner's manual. This passage in a real translation says, which I use the ESV, by the way, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2 verses 7 and 8. This does not support his claim, but instead claims the opposite that the secret wisdom of God is the revelation of the Messiah, who, if the rulers of the age had known and understood this wisdom, would not have crucified Christ. And this reveals a foundational problem with the purpose-driven dream doctrine's idea of Scripture, that it is a manual on how to live and bring out the best in us instead of being about Christ. Jesus addressed this when confronting the Pharisees about the way they viewed scripture, as if it were a book merely on how to be righteous, how life works, what to avoid and what to expect, etc. Does that sound familiar? John 5, 39-47 reads, You search the scriptures, now it's Jesus who's saying this, so, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now notice that Jesus states that Moses wrote of him. The Pharisees believed Moses and held to the law, believing in it, they would find life. Yet Jesus says that if they truly believed Moses, they would believe in the Messiah and would come to Christ. In the same way, many of the churches that teach this doctrine so very often take scripture out of context, allegorize it to make it about us, or teach that it is our owner's manual and how God brings out the best in us instead of it being about Christ. Philosophy and worldly wisdom is used to teach and train people to pursue God's will instead of doing the simple thing of looking at what God's word says we should do, come to Christ for life and obey his commandments. And so, because they do not go to scripture to tell us how to please God, we dive into issue number five, the myth that chasing our dreams is how we are faithful and please God. Quote, Find the moments when you feel God's pleasure, when you sense Him right next to you urging you on, when your dream and your relationship with Him intertwine in a flow that feels like what you've been made for all along. Then live in those moments as much as possible. End quote. Holly Gerst, You're Made for a God-Sized Dream, page 159. So pursuing the purpose or dream is how we are obedient, faithful, and please God not what is laid out for us in scripture. And I believe Martin Luther tackles this, uh, this issue better than I could. So I'm going to quote him. Quote, Now see how much a man has to do if he would do good works, which always are at hand in great number, and with which you are surrounded on all sides. But alas, 
because of his blindness, he passes him by and seeks and runs after others of his own devising and pleasure, against which no man can sufficiently speak and no man can sufficiently guard. With this all the prophets had to contend, and for this reason they were all slain, only because they rejected such self-devised works and preached only God's commandments. As one of them says, Jeremiah 7, Thus says the God of Israel unto you, Take your burnt offerings unto all your sacrifices, and eat your burnt offerings and your flesh yourselves. For concerning these things I have commanded you nothing, but this thing commanded I you. Obey my voice, that is, not what seems right and good to you, but what I bid you, and walk in the way that I have commanded you. And Deuteronomy 12 Thou shalt not do whatsoever is right in thine own eyes, but what thy God has commanded thee. These and numberless like passages of Scripture are spoken to tear men not only from sins, but from the works which seem to men to be good and right, and to turn men with a single mind to the simple meaning of God's commandments only, that they shall diligently observe this only and always, as it is written in Exodus 13, those or these commandments shall be for a sign upon the, the hand and for a memorial between thine eyes. And Psalm 1, a godly man meditates on God's law day and night. For we have more than enough and too much to do if we are to satisfy only God's commandments. He has given us such commandments that if we understand them aright, we dare not for a moment be idle and might easily forget all other works. But the evil spirit who never rests, when he cannot lead us to the left into evil works, fights on our right through self-devised works that seem good, but against which God has commanded. Deuteronomy 28 and Joshua 23, You shall not go aside from my commandments to the right hand or to the left. End quote. Martin Luther, A Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, page 27 to 28. Martin Luther makes clear God's instruction to focus on God's commandments as good works and nothing else. They are what we were made to do, and they are how we are to live. We can see this play out, especially in women's ministry, over and over again. God's instruction to women to love husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to husbands, is often seen as just tertiary, lower-level good works, and can often be set aside in pursuit of the real good work that God has called us to do in our purpose or dream. And in it, we dedicate our desires to God, calling them Corbin, or a service to God, Mark seven eleven. Instead of submitting our desires to God's directed will given to us in Scripture. Now, Jesus condemned neglecting God's commands for traditions of men. This is why I believe we should understand what Scripture says good works are and how it says we please God. Jesus tells us what we need to do to do the works of God, and that is to believe in the one God has sent, Jesus Christ, John six twenty-eight to 29 for when we believe and trust in Christ, we then have his teachings if we remain in him, 1 John two twenty-seven, And it is these teachings found in scripture that train us and equip us for every good work, Second <laughs> Timothy three sixteen to 17 and it's all rooted by faith in Christ. And that is issue number six. Faith is in God bringing our purpose or dream to fulfillment instead of in his mercy and promises as given to us in Christ. Outer works are held as good and needed, yet there are no outer good works without that which makes works good, faith. Faith is the chief work, and those striving for purpose and dreams neglect this foundational teaching. Quote, you shall thank God with all your heart that he thus reveals to you your weakness, through which he daily teaches and admonishes you how much you need to exercise yourself and daily strengthen yourself in faith. For how many do you see who habitually pray, sing, read, work, 
and seem to be great saints, and yet never get so far as to know where they stand in respect of the chief work, faith. And so in their blindness, they lead astray themselves and others, think they are very well off, and so unknowingly build on the sand of their works without any faith, not on God's mercy and promise through a firm, pure faith. No one knows what a great thing it is to trust God alone, except he who attempts it with his works. End quote. Martin Luther's Treatise on Good Works, PDF format, page 38. And then we have our final issue, issue number seven, God's will and work through providence, and the lack thereof in the purpose-driven dream theology. The final issue I have with this teaching is its lack of providence. When our purpose is preached instead of Christ, it is preached as though God's will is only accomplished by pursuing our dreams. So our purpose must be proclaimed so that God's will on earth will be done. Quote, you are chosen by God for a particular purpose, and he promises to see it through to completion if you'll only say yes to what he is whispering in your heart and your heart alone. End quote. Holly Girth, you're made for a God-sized dream, page 157. Instead, woven tightly into the doctrine of vocation is the doctrine of providence, for without providence, vocation has no standing, because it is understanding providence in and through our vocation that teaches that our God provides and answers prayer through the service and works of others. Quote, before you ate, you probably gave thanks to God for your food as is fitting. He is caring for your physical needs as with every other kind of need you have, preserving your life through his gifts. He provides food for those who fear him, Psalm 111.5, also to those who do not fear him, to all flesh, Psalm 136.25, and he does so by using other human beings. It is still God who is responsible for giving us our daily bread, though he could give it to us directly by a miraculous provision, as he once did for the children of Israel when he fed them daily with manna. God had chosen to work through human beings who, in their different capacities and according to their different talents, serve each other. This is the doctrine of vocation. To use another of Luther's example, God could have decided to populate the earth by creating each new person from the dust, as he did Adam. Instead, he chose to create new life through the vocation of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. God calls men and women together and grants them the unfathomable ability to have children. He calls people into families, in which, through the love and care of the parents, he extends his love and care for children. This is the doctrine of vocation. Jean Edward Veith, Jr., God at Work, page 13 to 14. And another quote, The truth is, God does indeed transcend his creation, but he also governs it. He himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, says the Apostle Paul. He is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's Acts 17, 25, and 20, verses 27 to 28. Jean Edward Veith, Jr., God at Work, page 26. So here's a look at how vocation has played out on the Bi in the Bible. We'll read Romans 13, 1-6. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what. God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
Notice in these verses that scripture says God is operative in human callings, even in those who do not acknowledge him. So we can see that there is no authority that God has not instituted, and this can include other non-political and non-judicial authorities such as parents, teachers, church leaders, supervisors, and the like. Basically, God calls people into their vocations in which they either honor the authority given to them by God by obeying his commands or dishonor, abuse, and transgress the authority given to them by God, thereby acting outside of their calling. Furthermore, the Romans 13 passage describes those in authority as not only servants, but instruments of God, agents of God's wrath against evildoers. And just as a civil magistrate was instituted by God to provide and, and execute justice, so does God provide other means through voca vocations such as healing through doctors and other occupations in the medical professions, training and teaching through parents and those in pedagogy and the educational field, our daily bread through those in the food industry, other supplies and needs, as given by occupation, occupations such as carpentry, building and desi design, inventions and ideas, and many other professions that provide daily needs and activities. And finally, we receive God's word and sacraments through church ministry. Our vocations are God at work through us. While purpose dream of uh, Purpose-driven dream doctrines say that God is at work through our individual specific dream or purpose. Vocation says God is at work in the biggest and even the smallest of jobs, such as taking out the trash, washing dishes, changing diapers, paying bills, all those, etc. And this is why vocation matters, because the doctrine teaches that we love our neighbor through our works done in our vocation, meaning that we can love and do good to our neighbors, even in our homes, in our hobbies, or the most menial of jobs. So in conclusion, these are just some of the issues I see with the very popular doctrine of purpose and being given God-sized dreams. They are so very self-focused, disguising our dreams and goals as our pursuit to bring glory to God at the negligence of God's very word and instruction into what pleases him. Jean Edward Veith Jr. explains, I believe, why the doctrine of vocation trumps the purpose-driven doctrine beautifully. 1. Based on scripture, the doctrine of vocation encompasses and equips Christians in life, no matter the circumstance, because it's comprehensive. Quote, it is odd that such a liberating, life-enhancing doctrine has become all but forgotten in our time, passed over in our seminaries, sermons, and Bible classes. But the doctrine of vocation makes up an important part of the spiritual heritage that contemporary Christians have, unfortunately, cut themselves off from and are in such great need of recovering. It is more than an understanding of work, more than the slogan that we should do all things for the glory of God, more than a vague theological platitude. The teachings on the subject by the old Reformation theologians are remarkably specific and realistic, giving practical guidance for how this doctrine can be lived out in the real fallen world. But more than that, the doctrine of vocation amounts to a comprehensive doctrine of the Christian life having to do with faith and sanctification, grace and good works. It is a key to Christian ethics. It shows how Christians can influence their culture. It transfigures ordinary, everyday life with the presence of God. End quote. Gina Rubith Jr., God at Work, page 16 to 17. And number two, based on scripture, the doctrine of vocation emphasizes God's hand in and through the means of each and every calling that God gives in life. Quote, what is distinctive about Luther's approach is that instead of seeing vocation as a matter of what we should do, what we must do as, Christ, as a Christian worker or, or a Christian citizen or a Christian parent, Luther emphasizes what God does in and through our vocations. That is to say, 
For Luther, vocation is not just a matter of law, though this is part of vocation that neither Luther nor this book will neglect. Rather, above all, vocation is a matter of gospel, a manifestation of God's actions, not our own. In this sense, vocation is not another burden placed upon us, something else to fail at, but a realm in which we can experience God's love and grace both in the blessings we receive from others and in the way God is working through us despite our failures. Luther goes so far as to say that vocation is a mask of God. That is, God hides himself in the workplace, the family, the church, and the seemingly secular society. To speak of God being hidden is a way of describing his presence, as when a child hiding in a room is there, just not seen. To realize that the mundane activities that take up most of our lives, going to work, taking the kids to soccer practice, picking up a few things at the stores, going to church, these are all hiding places for God, can be a revelation in itself. Most people see God in mystical experiences, spectacular miracles, and extraordinary acts that they do. To find him in vocation brings him literally down to earth, makes us see how close he really is to us, and transfigures everyday life. End quote. Jean Edward Veith Jr. God at Work, page 23 to 24. What a beautiful teaching, and what a beautiful thought. See the difference in who receives the glory? Vocation and good works, as taught in the Bible, is God's work, not ours. Vocation and good works, as taught in Scripture, is a result of faith in Christ our Lord and Savior. Vocation is the Holy Spirit in us, through our faith, producing the good works of God's commandments lived out in our daily lives. And so, because of this, I pray that you, in faith, Glorify God in your daily tasks. Serve and love your neighbor by washing dishes, respecting your husband, loving your children, working hard for your employer, buying groceries, sharing the gospel with others, thanking our Lord for what he has given, worshiping and receiving from him his word, his body, and his blood in the gathering of his church, and all the other activities that come day by day, week by week, month after month, till God takes you home. And I pray, in faith, you go to God in prayer and find Christ in Scripture. I pray that you are in His Word.